Today on the Lazy RPG Talk Show, we're going to look at Flea Mortals and Where Evil Lies, the just-released MCDM product and the one that they're going to be bringing out shortly. Shadow of the Weird Wizard now has a free downloadable quick play, so we can see what that looks like. There are lots of, because Gen Con happened this past week, there's a lot of different awards that have been coming out for a lot of different RPGs. We're going to take a look at those. We're going to take a look at the, the whole situation going on with AI art in its use inside Big B's Glory of the Giants, and we're going to cover the remainder of the July 2023 Patreon Q&A, all today on the Lazy RPG Talk Show. I'm Mike Shea, your pal from Sly Flourish, here to talk about all things in role-playing games. This show, like all of the work that I do, is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. Patrons get access to a dedicated Discord server, the monthly Q&A, random generators, Uncovered Secrets Volume 1 and 2, the City of Arches Sourcebook, a whole bunch of exclusive adventures, and a whole lot more. But most of all, they help me put on shows like this. To the patrons of Sly Flourish, thank you so much for your support. It has been a very busy week, and we've got a lot to talk about, so I'm going to cut through a few things pretty quickly. First, Flea Mortals, the much-anticipated million-dollar monster book put out by MCDM, is out and in the open. I got my copy. I don't have the physical copy yet, but I have the virtual copy. It's really cool. I have monsters that are in here, so this is an important thing to note that I was paid by MCDM to design monsters for them. I also forgot. It was actually kind of funny. I was taking a look through Flea Mortals because it's really cool, and of course I went and looked at my guys because I like my guys. My guys are vampires. If you want to see the work that I did, take a look at the vampires. I really like them. If you want to see what like how I have evolved in my thought about how vampires should be, that is where it goes. But I was also also interesting when I was looking at encounter building because I was like oh I wonder how they did encounter building and they have a whole thing about building encounters they have stuff about encounters per day and they have some nice tables in here about like a CR budget that you essentially have a CR budget that you expend for like an easy standard or hard battle and I was looking at this and I'm like okay and they have a CR cap and that CR cap it it follows the the Paul Hughes level of of the CR cap that Paul Hughes recommends in level up advanced 5e and I was like this is really cool I I really like what they did this very feels very similar to the kind of stuff that I talk about with the lazy encounter benchmark and the kind of recommendations and the stuff that I wrote for Tales of the Valiant and some other stuff. It was really cool. And then I was on Mastodon and James Intercasso, who was the lead designer for this, was like, yeah, we had Mike Shea come in and do the encounter building side. And I'm like, you did? I was like, oh, you did? Yeah, like a year and a half ago. (laughs) If I recall, James and I were talking. He's like, hey, we'd love to have you consult on the encounter building stuff. He was was writing it up and he wanted, you know, some other folks to kind of come in that had thought about this. I'm like, yeah, absolutely. So of course it matches a lot of similar stuff because I helped. I helped. I offered the same recommendations to him that I offered to lots of people. So that that kind of cracked me up. Was that, yeah, in fact, the encounter stuff that here, I didn't write the encounter building section on here and there's stuff in here that I did not consult on. Not that it's bad. It's great. But there's stuff that's not mine. And then there's stuff where I was like, oh yeah, that, that really fits. And it's got the same sort of like when you have a number of characters, you have the average character level. What's the, you know, given the difficulty of the situation, how hard do you want it to be? And if you look about, it's about 50%, right? A 14th level character, a 7th level PC or 7th level CR, that's about right. So, you know, really good system. What's neat about this is you have the encounter CR system in here. We have the one that is in like Xanathar's Guide. We have the one that is going to be in Tales of the Valiant. You know, we have some that are done by yours truly. We have a lot of different ways to do encounter building systems. And they're so much better now than they were 10 years ago. Like that is, I think we're really coming to, and it's something I spent a lot of time on. And I'm glad to see that some of the stuff that I've done is influencing these areas because I think I found a way that is way easier. And I'm really happy to see that imprinted in a lot of different places. So I think we're coming to a point where like encounter building is not quite as arduous as it needs to be or as it was or as it has been. Like enough new groups are coming out saying, hey, here's a new way to do it. And of course, we're going to see what Wizards of the Coast does with it in the 2024 DMG coming out next year. So we'll see what path they take, but we'll see. Because a lot of it is like, these are similar, not just because like, oh, Mike Shea weaseled his influence into all of these areas and managed to do it, but because the math kind of works out this way that like Paul Hughes and I independently came to conclusions about things. And then, you know, so so it's like the math kind of just works out a certain way. And if you want it to be easy, you're going to round to a certain number and that's going to be the easy number to remember. So that works really well. I'm not going to dive too deep into Flea Mortals right now. I'm probably going to, I need to go do a deeper look myself 
in what it's got in here. I just haven't had time. I really, I've been busy with Forge of Foes work myself. So I haven't had the time to really like sit down and digest it and absorb it, but I will almost certainly do a deeper dive into, into Flea Mortals so that we can take a look at it because it is, it looks outstanding. It looks like a really good book. I, I know the amount of work that it took to make it. I know the kind of play testing that they do. Obviously just looking at it, it looks beautiful. I think it could be a tremendously strong role-playing book, a tremendously strong monster book. I'm very excited to have it in hand. I'm excited to have the physical version in hand too. One thing that I think is interesting that I'll, that I'll note about this, and I think is a good thing, but it's it's a different thing, is I, know, I think the intent of the book was that you could replace your monster manual with this. That was like an idea. And that, that idea never really resonated very well with me because the idea that you didn't need your monster manual was like, well, why not, right? And now it's one thing, to look at a book like Level Up Advanced 5e's Monsters Menagerie, which was my favorite book of 2022. I love the Monsters Menagerie. I use it all the time. I highly recommend it. That one actually replaces every monster that's in the monster manual. Like they, they took all of the SRD monsters and they made new versions of them all that can be can directly replace the ones that you have. The Flea Mortals doesn't do that. Flea Mortals has a lot of kind of standard monsters in it are unique monsters. They're different kinds of monsters than the ones that you would see. The challenge ratings are different. Certainly the mechanics are different. So it doesn't feel like a direct replacement of the monster manual, which is good because it means you still have the monster manual and you have this and you have a lot of different monsters in this that can replace in general the kinds of stuff that you have in the monster manual, but not necessarily be a direct full replacement, which to me is a good thing because I have that and that's the monster's menagerie. And I'll probably have another one when I have the 2024 monster book the monster manual from 2024 so we don't really need just continual reprints of the same monsters that are just slightly tweaked it's nice to see a book that's actually taking what i refer to as an opinionated approach to it and i know that matt colville says hey we think monsters are boring we think the original monsters are boring so we're going to make spicy monsters i like the boring monsters in many cases but i'm also happy to see people's different opinions on it and i'm i'm happy to see people take a different approach at it so i'm very excited about the flea mortals from that perspective besides the fact that i have work in here and i would love you to see that work along with it and there's a little bit of controversy in here that we're going to talk about it mcdm also began a new crowdfunding campaign for a companion book to flea mortals called where evil lives now where evil lives was actually a stretch goal for flea mortals that they said if we reach a certain point in flea mortals we're going to be adding more layers that every one of the boss monsters in this will have its own layer and we're going to add that to the book however it might get really big which means we might have to do it in a separate book it was kind of one line that they threw at the bottom of the kickstarter now what they found out and and they may have known this already but it wasn't really super clear in the kickstarter it turns out that shipping another giant book so they they expect that this book might be as big as 320 pages so the idea that you were going to be able to back a kickstarter Kickstarter for a physical version of Flea Mortals and for free get an additional 320 page hardcover book that you're not able to do that. And they know that, especially at the quality level that they have for this. So instead, what they did is they said everybody who backed Flea Mortals gets a, I think this is right, gets a digital version of Where Evil Lives. You get the PDF version of Where Evil Lives, which makes sense because they don't have to print and ship you a whole separate book on the same price that you paid for the Kickstarter. But in order to make the print version of this book, they launched another campaign to for, for the, the book of layers, this other 320 page book. And what I like that they did is that for people who backed the physical version of Flea Mortals, you get this at a very steep discount. It's $20 for a 320 page book, which is probably at cost. That might be lower than cost. So that is one where, like, it's one of these situations, and I know they, they caught some flack for this, that then MCDM caught flack for this. And this is one where, like, I think both sides kind of have a point that MCDM did state that you would get another book when you got. If you if they expanded out and it turned out that Where Evil Lives is going to have to be a separate book, that you would get that book. At the same time, you know, small independent company that they even I mean they made a million dollars, but trust me, a million dollars when you're putting out books of this quality, that doesn't you know that's a million dollars gross, and they have people on salary and they have to do print costs and they have to do all kinds of other things. There's pretty thin margins that they. It, it does not make sense that they'd be able to send you a 320-page hardcover book that you think you could throw into your normal one. Now, another argument, though, is that people are paying really high rates for shipping outside of North America. So that shipping rate, now you're paying that shipping rate again because you're not going to have to pay it once for Flea Mortals and you're going to have to pay it again for Where Evil Lives. And that shipping cost 
is a real sticking point to a lot of people. And I recognize that too. There's no, the reality is there's not a great way to do this situation overall. I don't blame MCDM though. It would have been nicer if they clarified more specifically that you would get a digital version of the book and not necessarily a physical version of the book. I'm sure that they wish they had said that too. But I also think that it's just hard. Like they, you know, it, it's not like they're sitting on a mountain of money and they could easily send this book out to you and you get free shipping anywhere in the world. They can't do that. Nobody can do that. So, you know, I'm happy to see that they're doing this. I'm excited to see the result of where evil lives, just like I'm excited to see the work of flea mortals. I can understand the frustrations that people have with it. And I, I bet so does MCDM. I bet they understand the frustrations too. And I bet they wish they had a better way to do it, but they don't because it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard industry. There is a 47 page preview of where evil lives. Same style that is done for Flea Mortals. Looks really good. Really good design. Beautiful artwork. That is totally Castlevania. Beautiful artwork. My guy that I designed, Von Glauer, the vampire, is right there on the cover. That's my dude. I, I designed him. I made a stat block for him. I'm very happy about that. It's very cool. I didn't invent the character. The character is Matt Colville's, but I wrote stats for him. And they seem to be happy. He had a very high kill count in playtesting, from what I understand. He's, he's a scary dude. Bunch of different layers from 2nd of 20th level. What's really neat is, once again, James Ertercasso is going to be the lead designer. James Ertercasso and myself and Scott Gray worked on a similar book called Fantastic Layers. So I can tell you, James has a lot of experience building books about layers. And I can't wait to see more of them. It's going to be outstanding. So we have these, these different layers that are playable right now with very cool maps and uh, stat blocks and they work with the stats from flea mortals so looks looks really looks really cool very excited for this take a look at the preview see what you think anyway you will find links to both the ability the, the place to purchase flea mortals and the book to and the place to support the where evil lives backer kit crowdfunding campaign in the show notes talking about free stuff Wizards of the Coast put out a Giants of the Starforge free adventure, which you can uh, you can you can add to your D and D Beyond account. It is a pretty lengthy adventure, high level. So they'll always talk about, oh, Wizards never puts out high level adventures. This one, I believe, is a pretty high level adventure. It is for 16th level characters. So if you're looking for high level play, if you if you feel like you're not really seeing enough high level support for from Wizards of the Coast specifically for high level adventures, here is what a 16th level adventure looks like. Again, I haven't had a lot of time to dig into it to really see what it's got, to see how well it works. Is it is it a strong adventure for 16th level characters? Is it, is it going to hold its own? It's very hard to build adventures of this high level. It's got like a Cinder Hulk. That's cool. Furbolg Wanderer. Fire Giant Forge Collar. Fire Giant. Fire Giant of Evil Fire. It's kind of a weird name. Pretty cool. So you can get that adventure free and take a look at it. I believe this is not included in Glory of the Giants. This is a separate adventure that they built as kind of a promo for Glory of the Giants, which you can pick up right here in D&D Beyond. So that looks pretty cool. Robert Schwab, the creator of Shadow of the Demon Lord. He was a consultant on D&D 5th Edition. He has been doing RPGs and D&D design work for... Many of us really love Shadow of the Demon Lord and have been very excited to hear about his work on Shadow of the Weird Wizard, which is like a Shadow of the Demon Lord that is a little less hardcore, gross, dark and dismal and more of your straightforward standard fantasy RPG. We've been waiting for it for a long time. I've actually played playtests with Rob years ago for Shadow of the Weird Wizard, but now it's really coming to fruition. We're really starting to see it come out. The playtest, there's been, an, I don't think it's an open playtest, but a closed playtest that's been going on for a long time and a lot is going on. But one of the neat things is that they now have a quick play for it. You can go to DriveThruRPG. You can pick up a quick play, a 27-page quick play for Weird Wizard. Certainly, this is going to be like the sample that you will see for the Kickstarter for Weird Wizard, which I think is coming out pretty soon, next, next couple weeks, I think. And we could take a look at what it's like. And I did take a look at what it's like. There was one part that immediately caught my attention. So I'm not going to dive into all of the mechanics of how Shadow of the Weird Wizard works, but it is a really cool RPG because I, I played it with Shadow of the Demon and really liked it. The one thing that I was like, huh, that's interesting. And I was like, hmm, makes me kind of mopey, right? A little mopey and sad for Mike was that it returned to specific distances for speed. So I remember that when Shadow of the Demon Lord came out, it uses yards for distance and that works well because yards to meters works really well when you're doing internet you're switching to international and it's close enough to a square and that way you can also say one which means if you say it's one yard two yard three yard four yard you know that's one two three four squares and it just means you have three foot squares 
know, 100 centimeter squares instead of, you know, bigger five foot squares, which doesn't, I don't know what the hell in metric system, 180 centimeters, something like that. So it goes back to fixed distances. And I, so I remember Robert Schwab talking about using fixed distances in Shadow of the Demon Lord and then immediately put out like a supplement that said, hey, you can do zones instead. And I remember talking to him. He's like, oh God, zones are so much better. I love doing zones. I love zones so much. It's really, really great. And, you know, I'm definitely going to be using zone-based stuff inside Shadow of the Demon Lord. I was like, oh, cool. I love that. And then, or Shadow of the Weird Wizard. Then Shadow of the Weird Wizard is coming out and it turns out it's not using zones. And I was like, oh, it's back to speed again. Like, ah, oh, you know, just the nitpickiness of speed and like having those kind of square distance. It's just not the style of game that I really enjoy. So I'm always happy to see an RPG that doesn't do it because we already have RPGs that do it. I was like, oh, what do we need in this one too? So I went over to the Shadow of the Demon Lord Discord server and asked, like, did Rob mention anything about why it does that? And what he said makes sense. And I've heard this, I actually heard this straight from Jeremy Crawford as well about fifth edition of D&D was that you can take fixed distances and go to abstract combat pretty easily but you cannot take abstract combat and go to fixed distances easily that you are dictating a single style of play if you go with abstract combat like like there isn't a way to take 13th age for example and bring it back to specific five foot squares you can play it on a battle map i have played abstract systems on battle maps all the time i've used miniatures i use maps you just don't worry about the squares instead you worry about zones or you worry about you know close medium far or whatever but you can't add specific distances to it. So I, I don't know if Rob got a bunch of pushback from people that were testing it that said, hey, we'd rather have a grid and you can't use a grid. But I know that his argument for it was that there will be in whatever the Game Master's Guide section of this book a way to use zones, but that the 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 baseline is going to be using the same kind of distance that Shadow of the Demon Lord used, which was yards, because you can always make it more abstract you can't make it less abstract it's kind of like you can you can always take a high res thing and make it low res but you can't take a low res thing and make it high res you lose you lose resolution so same same process here it's a pretty crunchy system like when i looked at it and i was looking at things like you have these different character character builds you know the soldier for example and they have things like engage the enemy when an enemy moves in a space within a number of yards of you equal to your speed you can use your reaction to move up to your speed if you can reach the enemy you can attack it and if the enemy takes damage from the attack it's drops to zero this is like a super opportunity attack which i think means there isn't actual normal opportunity attacks that you basically have certain classes like fighters that are able to zip up and hit a guy and, and prevent somebody else from doing it a this works well in theater of the mind even though it seems a little crunchy i've seen this used in 13th age 13th age has a very similar system to this where you can like zip up and then basically base a guy and hit them and get a free attack that's like the soldier's equivalent of an opportunity attack but that's an example of like a little bit of the combat crunchiness that we're seeing in shadow of the weird wizard so we'll see how that comes out in the end in the game itself I did notice that a lot of the spells and things like that still have that sort of abstract distance that if you're firing like lightning, it's sort of a forked lightning that hits a couple of people that are within a certain distance. It's not like you're, you don't have lines. I don't know about blasts. I didn't really, I didn't really dive in too much and see and see blasts. But the main thing is there's a 27 page pre free preview of shadow of the weird wizard that we can dive into and really investigate and really look into before we back the Kickstarter. I'm back in the Kickstarter. There's no doubt. One thing about Robert Schwab's, kickstarters is you certainly don't lack for material i'm still getting kickstarter things for a thing he did many years ago like there's a tremendous amount of stuff that's coming out for it so you get a whole lot but it's you know this looks really cool and i and again it's sort of like an opinionated rpg that rob schwab had particular ways he felt DD should go and he's able to make that in this book. And you can tell by just looking at this, the quality of the layout, the quality of the editing. His writing is fantastic. He's one of the best designers in this entire industry. So having an RPG that's like from his head, that's then battle tested in many, many games and then brought to our door, that is an invaluable proposition. So I can't wait to see it. I'm going to back it. I probably, I'm sure my players, I have players who played Shadow of the Demon Lord and loved it. I bet they would absolutely love to play this. God, it's a good time for like fantasy RPGs. Like we have so many really, really good fantasy RPGs that are either out or coming out we have so many choices we can make it's it's really great like it's really really awesome and then we have an industry that supports it we have a way for like rob to work on this game for years and it looks like he's going to do well in the kickstarter based on the number of people that have not asked for notification it looks like he's going to do okay and that's great like that's it's not easy to have somebody put out a you know spend a good chunk of their life writing a product like this and putting as much energy and then getting it out there and getting enough money to, to make up for the time that was spent on it it's fantastic so i can't wait till the kickstarter comes out i'm very excited for it 
Again, you can find the quick play for Shadow the Weird Wizard in the show notes. This past week was Gen Con. During Gen Con, there were two different award ceremonies, the Diana Jones Award and the Annie Awards. I'm, again, in the show notes, you can find links to all the award winners for both of the events. I really think these awards are a great way to shine a light on products that sometimes don't get near the light that other major RPGs get, which is great. And also a great way for us GMs to find products that are worth us looking at. So Coyote and Crow. So the Diana Jones Award doesn't have categories. It instead has one big award that you get and the award that went out for the diana the 2023 diana jones award was the rpg coyote and crow a science fantasy role-playing game set in an uncolonized future so coyote and crow you know created by a cherokee designer and focuses on sort of native american style rpg in which you know you didn't have the horrors of colonialism kick in and you have that growth it actually reminded me a bit of a comic book called East of West that I really liked in which basically the Civil War went on forever and you have all of these various nations of America and one of them is a Native American one where they're like super, super high tech and yet still have hung on to the same traditions of Native Americans. I really thought that that was very cool and well done in that in that comic book series and I think I have not had a chance and I, I'm definitely going to pick it up and look at Coyote and Crow. I just haven't had a chance to pick it up yet. But it looks from everything I've heard, it's an outstanding, it's an outstanding book. So looks, looks really, looks really cool. And there were some big finalists for the year as well. Linda Cordega, Codega for their work on various reporting for RPG stuff, including the OGL thing. Journeys to the Radiant Citadel, which we talked about before. Rosenstrass. I have not heard of another role-playing game. Cole Worley, a game designer from Worley Gig Games that I have not heard of uh, uh, either. This is a good opportunity to learn more about these, these these fine creators and these fine products. So that was the Diana Jones Award. The other award ceremony was the Ennies. The Ennies has many, 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 many categories and many, 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 many winners. So you have a lot of different things that you can look in. And it looks like the number one game, the product of the year, was the Vassane RPG. Again, another role-playing game that I have not had a chance to take a look at. But I've heard it's very good. DM Chromie here in our chat is saying, it's very good. I need, to, I need to pick it up. I need to pick it up and take a look. So I will do that. Free League put that out. So Free League is a pretty big company. And Free League actually, from what I understand, had a bunch of things. So they had the Blade Runner, Core Rules, one best layout in the starter set, one, one best cartography. Magpie Games got stuff. Sword of the Serpentine by Pelgrane Press, one for best writing. So a lot of really good, a lot of really good products that you, that you get here. I actually picked up, where is it? It's somewhere on my shelf. I stuck here. I don't know. I lost it, but I have, I picked up the physical copy of Sword of the Serpentine. Boy, it's a meaty tome. It's a great big book. Again, another book that I have to somehow find the time to sit down and read because there's so many, it's such a great time. There's so much stuff. So in the show notes, you can find a link to both the Diana Jones award winners and award nominees and the Ennies. And it's a great way to take a look at like what else is going on in the TTRPG community. What are the products are out there that you might want to take a look at and all like where the attention is going for, for these kinds of things. I think it's very valuable. It's pronounced Vesson. Vesson? Vessen, pronounce Vessen. Thank you. Take a look at all that stuff. Great way for us to expand our horizons as GMs and really understand the scope of the things that are coming out there. And again, you might find like one little tiny mechanic from a book, book. Hey, that's really crafty. I'm going to stick that in my game. Or you might say, I really want to run that game. Like it's going to be really fun. So lots of different ways, lots of different ways that you can go with these things. Also during Gen Con, Paizo announced that they are creating a Starfinder 2, that there's going to be a play test for it. It's going to be based on the core rules of Pathfinder 2, the three action system, all the same stuff is supposed to be directly compatible. And they're going to be doing a play test of the different kinds of classes that exist for Starfinder that don't exist for Pathfinder. I have friends who really love Starfinder. I've played it a couple of times. I thought it was really fun and it's just neat. You know, again, another cool RPG that we can see that, that goes off in in a different direction than all of the others. So we have lots of different things to play. So if you if you love your Pathfinder 2 and you're interested in taking it to space, take a look for the Starfinder 2nd Edition. It's going to be a while before the full version of Starfinder comes out in 2nd Edition. It looks like it is due in 2025. On to a little bit of drama. Sometimes I, I, I question whether or not even to really cover this because like, ah, oh, it's it's kind of dramatic and it's kind of a big, you know, it's kind of a thing. But then there's sometimes where like you don't mention something and that's like not that's like mentioning something. So I said, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it today. That topic is the use of AI generated art inside Bigby's Glory of the Giants. This is Wizards of the Coast latest release. So it got discovered pretty quickly and you could, you know, some basic look at the images said that there was a, there was art inside Bigby's book that had been generated by AI, or at least modified by generative AI, image manipulation AI. People that looked at the artist of like who did it, and I think the artist had put up a, 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 a post 
and said, yeah, I did it. Here, here's what I did with it. And now in this case, it was an actual artist who was using the generative technique on their own art, which then was submitted to Wizards of the Coast. Apparently, according to Wizards of the Coast, this art reached them years ago that it wasn't even something that happened in like the last couple of months it's something that happened more than a year ago and i think if we look back more than a year ago not a lot of people were talking about generative generative art i don't remember when things like mid journey came out but i think it was after this situation might have gone on there so the whole situation came up and it kind of blew up as you know and it go of course the story always blows up and i'm sure there will be a hundred youtube videos of shock face saying like ai in wizards using ai Right. And, you know, that's the sensationalism of the story. The answer is an artist used AI to generate their own thing, unbeknownst to wizards. And then it got published in a book. And then people looked at it and said, that, that, that foot looks weird. Why does that foot look so weird? I bet it's AI. And everybody's got like a hard line for AI these days. We're like looking for it and like, which is the AI generated art and everything like that. Wizards of the Coast quickly put out a statement over the weekend, right? So they jumped on it pretty quickly that they said, they became aware of an artist that used AI to generate artwork for the upcoming book, Big Beast Presents Glory of the Giants. We have worked with this artist since 2014 and he's put years of work into books we all love. While we weren't aware of the artist's choice to use AI in the, in the creation process for the commission pieces, we've discussed it with him and he will not use AI for Wizards work moving forward. We are revising our process and up our artist guidelines to make it clear that artists must refrain from using AI art generation as part of their art creation process for developing D&D art. This gets back to what they said at the summit. They, they didn't really see a place for AI, generative AI in the processes for what Wizards of the Coast is putting out. I believe them. So I, you know, I know that we love our conspiracy theories and we love to say, oh, was this Wizards of the Coast's attempts to try to slide AI in secretly? And we'll, we'll try it out here and see if people, if there's backlash. I know that people are, I've seen it because people are saying it, right? And I've seen people say that. And this is one where Hanlon's razor really works pretty well. And, and I'm going to say it, but Hanlon's razor is a little insulting in this circumstance. So I'm going to pull up. Hanlon's razor is essentially you don't apply to maliciousness, which you can apply to incompetence. That's a refrain. Incompetence in this case is people being very busy, people doing a lot of other work, people not recognizing the artifacts of what AI generation could do because they're looking at hundreds and hundreds of pieces of art. One thing I will, I will steadfastly defend is the art direction that goes on in Wizards of the Coast books. I have lots of design concerns with Wizards of the coast books i certainly have sort of like product design concerns like when i talked about Spelljammer, and i'm i didn't like Spelljammer, right i've talked about not liking Spelljammer a lot on the show one thing i love is the art the art in Spelljammer is gorgeous the art in most of these books i've picked up a wizard's book recently and opened it up and be like holy cow this blows me away right i love the art in these books the art direction in these books is fantastic so I, I i have a tremendous respect for the art director who's figuring all of these pieces of art commissioning these art getting the art back and putting it into the books considering that these books are usually a year early in their production schedule and perhaps it wasn't exactly known what the artifacts of ai generation are going on and in this case it was an artist who was using it it's easy to miss something like that and it got missed and it got picked up and people jumped on it wizards is <laughs> they've had a, B a bad pr year through their own actions right for this year this is one where it's like it was i don't think it was through their actions I really don't believe in any kind of conspiracy theory that would tell me that they are trying to slide generative AI use into their products to see how we'll do with it. I don't think that's the case. If it was, they certainly learned now from one piece that was done by one artist that, you know, it became like a great big, you know, explosion over, over the weekend. So they made this statement about it, but then another artist, April Prime, a concept artist said that their work got AI enhanced after they had sent in concept art, that the concept art was then manipulated with AI generation into a full piece of art that was put in the books. The, I don't really know the details of this. It's not really clear exactly what happened. Wizards didn't make any statement about this. I do find it hard to believe that somebody inside Wizards of the Coast used a generative AI technique in order to manipulate concept art to turn it into a full piece. It's possible, and I'm just speculating on all of this, it's possible that the concept art went to another artist who did use generative techniques to, to come up with a formal piece, and then Wizards brought that in. That's possible. I really don't think that in, I will, I will make this statement and you can hold me to it. When it comes to the creation of the books that are coming out for D&D, &D, I really don't think Wizards of the Coast is considering AI use at all 
for that part of the that part of the industry. The creators who are there making the books for Wizards of the Coast for D&D, both internal to Wizards of the Coast and external to Wizards of the Coast, except in this circumstance, obviously, are not interested in AI taking over their stuff or, or generating their content. So I know that it's very easy to say, oh, of course, Wizards of the Coast, evil corporation, they're probably going to use AI stuff. I don't think they're going to use it in the production of books. I don't think they have any interest in using the production of books. I don't think they need to because the art isn't really even the expensive part. It's expensive. Good art is really expensive and there's certainly a cost. And there'd be some cost savings that they wanted to go with it. But trust me, it's way worse to have PR like this than it is to save money on a piece of art. So this just in while we're recording the show, apparently April Prime did confirm that the same artist who had used the generative AI techniques for the other one was the artist who put out the piece that was using generative AI techniques from the concept art. So we still can point it back to one single artist who was using this in this circumstance. So what's my point in all this, right? Why bring all this up? I think there's a couple of points I want to make. One, I don't blame Wizards of the Coast for this. I know it's easy to do. And it's funny because I get people that email me that tell me I'm being very mean to Wizards of the Coast. And I get other people that say I'm a shell for Wizards of the Coast. So I don't know. I try to be pretty even-handed when it comes to my handling of Wizards of the Coast. You have heard me be critical of some of the work that they do. You've heard me be critical of some of the directions that they're going. But then I also think we, I personally, want to make sure that we are not hitting them with things that aren't their issue. And I don't think that it is, it is their concern of theirs. Obviously, and I bet their art director is going to be a lot better at, at recognizing AI generated art. They're going to be carefully looking, counting all the fingers, counting all the toes, any weird feet that have too many bones in them. They're going to start looking at that kind of thing very carefully. And I, I believe that they're going to hold artists to say, do not use generative AI art for that. But I don't think we can really blame Wizards of the Coast for this specific circumstance. I don't blame Wizards of the Coast for this specific circumstance. Again, there are other things if, we, if you're bothered by wizards, there's other things to be bothered by. I don't think we need to be bothered by that. I, I do think it's pretty bad that like fans of it saw it almost immediately before the book is even like in stores, right? And that does show where it's like, you know, a careful editorial process to make sure that stuff doesn't get out there. But again, timelines for these books are a year out. The AI stuff is really only six months or so. That has really been a, a hot topic. I don't really think I can blame, you know, blame them for something like that. I will say this. I bet you. In the same way that I bet you that they are not considering the use of generative AI in the creation of the physical products of D&D or like the books of D&D, somebody somewhere inside Wizards of the Coast and Hasbro has little green dollar signs in their eyes and is like, yeah, but what if we used it over here for this thing? What if we, for example, and I'm just making this up, but let's pretend somebody said, you know, we could have an infinite number of character portraits. We could set up a generative AI technique that could give you a character portrait for your character inside D&D Beyond. Or or we could use it to generate models for your model in the in the virtual tabletop. Certainly some, you know, they're definitely like corporate executives, any corporate executive in the tech world. And there's a lot of corporate executives in the tech world that are in Wizards of the Coast now. Certainly they have said, hey, this new generative AI thing is huge. It's really big. It's being used everywhere. I bet you we could use that somewhere. I bet they're not going to use it directly for things like art or text in physical products. I think there, you know, there are other places inside of what Wizards creates where they, where they might consider using it. And they might also say, we're just going to keep getting our asses kicked every time we put it out, so maybe we don't do it. I also, I do not hold it against anybody to be mad about this. And an example is Keith Amon, a very you know, friend of mine. I've run a D&D game for him. The, this is the author of what the monsters know what they're doing. He's got a whole bunch of books. I got a bunch of books on myself. More monsters know what they're doing. Live to tell. How to defend your lair. I've got all these books sitting on my shelf right now. Keith Amon had a statement that was that really grabbed me, right? Because you know, really, really, really caught my attention. And I'm going to link to in the show notes and is worth your read, which is about his career. He has been a writer and an editor for 30 years. His wife is an illustrator and has illustrated the art for the books that he does. And they are a no AI household, right? They, they believe that good art comes from human beings generating stuff for other human beings. And so, and his point was, I am not going to buy Big B's and I am not going to do any of my typical monsters know what they're doing sort of work with monsters from Big B's because of this. I hold him no ill will for his decision to do that, that we can, you know, we all get to decide how we're going to treat this circumstance and what we're going to do with it. He has made that statement. And again, it's kind of like, okay, well, it was, you know, it was the art. It's easy to look at that and say, it was the one artist. Wizards didn't have anything to do with it. But you're also making a statement to Wizards that says, really, we mean it. I know even whether it was one artist that you hired, 
you need to pay attention to the fact that we do not want this stuff in our content. And I don't. I agree with him on that. I do not want to buy a book from Wizards of the Coast that's using generative text or generative art for the content that's in the book. I don't want it. I want art from human beings. I want text from human beings. And that's what I'm paying for. And that's what I want. So I strongly agree with him on that. I don't think I'm going to say, like, I don't want to buy Big Beast. There's a lot of stuff going on at Big Beast. And there was a lot of artists, independent, commissioned artists, that their work went in there. A lot of designer work that went in there. I want to see what the book looks like. I'm, I'm still going to buy it. I'm still going to pick it up. The fact that one artist manipulated one piece of, or two, maybe more than one piece of art, and that it has a weird foot, I'm going to, I'm going to get over that. But I do not hold anybody else to that same standard. You do not have to, you know, you, you, we each get to decide what our response to this is going to be. So what are these statements? I think this is important too. This is something, cause I'm, I'm still learning. Like, I'm, and I know I am frustrating people cause they tell me you are frustrating me. And we have this conversation over on the Sly Flourish Discord server. We had it over yesterday because I haven't made like a firm, no AI period sort of statement. Also, I have, I don't think I have been like, oh, we should embrace it. I did a whole section of the show about how AI can be used or generative text-based AI can be used for game prep kind of stuff. But I don't think in that, if you go back and you look at it, I don't think I was like super positive. Like, oh, this is, you know, shock face. This is totally changing the, how we're going to do DMing. It's like, eh, it's kind of like a bad random generator. And I already have random generators, right? So I don't, I have, I'll be honest, like straightforward, you know, whether you, I know some people who have found a lot of value in their game prep using AI, I found it was pretty useful to come up with specific riddles for a specific topic. And even those riddles kind of sucked and I still had to pick them out. It's not, I, I have not seen a tremendous impact in the world of RPG prep. And I certainly haven't seen it generate text that has been good enough to withstand the kind of stuff that I would expect a human being able to be able to create for a written product. But we talk about this a lot and I'm listening. I'm trying to understand this is a fast moving topic and I want to understand what's going on. So a lot of it, are, what are the arguments about this? Why do we care? Right. And there are definitely people who are, I've, I've heard this. I've heard this multiple times in the Twitch chat just now. Why do we care about them artists using AI to aid them in the generation of art that they're creating. Is that not kind of like any other Photoshop tool, like a color enhancer or a, some, a mask, a mask tool that lets you mask an image? Why is it really different? These are just palettes. These are just brushes. That just happens to be a brush that does a certain thing. And then I've heard other arguments about, well, it's already out there. We're all using it for all of it, blah, 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 blah. So there's been other arguments, but the, what are the arguments I'm listening to are the arguments that somebody like Keith Amon is breaking up about why this is a big deal. And it really kind of falls down into three areas. One, the models are built on copywritten material for which the creators of that model did not have permission to use. That is a real big one. And there's not really a good argument against that one, right? They use stuff. They went and filtered a bunch of images. Those images are out there. Even if those images are openly available on the web, even if you can go get them, that doesn't mean you have permission to use them for anything other than what the artist originally intended them to be used for. And, 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 and certainly includes training a model, right? So a lot of, I know that, I think it was DeviantArt, like a lot of people blacked out all their art on DeviantArt because they found out that DeviantArt was feeding tools like MidJourney. And that's really bad, right? Like if your copywritten work shouldn't be used to, gen, to do anything other than what you want that work to be able to do. Even if you're putting out on the open internet, it shouldn't, shouldn't be able to be used for things that you want to do. So that's the n argument number one. Argument number two is that the threat of AI generated stuff is threatening people's jobs. We see this in the Hollywood strikes that are going on. One of the, about the two big reasons why they're going on the Hollywood strike residual. And I think there's probably other sub ones too. residuals is one, but also a big one is like AI generated stuff that writers are worried that, that scripts are going to start getting written and generated with AI generated script. And that particularly for actors that in many cases, actors who don't have a lot of power in their contract negotiations have had to eat or are put in a position where they have to give away likenesses of their images for use in AI generated stuff or for potential use in AI generated stuff. And then what we see corporate greed all over the place and they go and they say, Hey, we don't need all these people. We can instead generate with art. So our AI art taking away jobs from human beings, particularly creative work from human beings is a huge concern. It is already doing this. There are already people. There was a whole thought about copywriters, advertisement copywriters who were basically got fired. Cause like, Oh, we can get our copy. We, you know, when we ask you for 20, you know, 20 bits of copy for this thing, we could just ask the AI to generate 20 bits of copy and we can pull it in. So that, that is an issue too. And then the third is that AI generated material material can flood the market with a bunch of crap. I'm kind of in all three of these, right? My issues are with all three of these because I put up a lot of information on my website. I put up a lot of free previews. I put up a lot of creative commons based stuff. Now the creative commons based stuff, I mean, they're violating that too, because they're not referencing my stuff. So even if they go and get my creative commons work and train an AI on it, unless the AI says, by the way, this material came from slyflourish.com, they are violating 
even my really, really open Creative Commons law. So I'm hit on all three of these, but I still am keeping an open mind about how the technology works and what's going on with it. I use it, I try it, I experiment with it because I wanna understand what the tech is. All three of these are issues, but a big one is that they will flood the market with crap. That it's already hard to get our stuff noticed. If we're a bunch of people, a bunch of creators, especially new creators who haven't been around and haven't had 15 years to put up a website, that they are trying to put their material up, they're trying to get some visibility for up, and then there's 30 other people that are just saying, oh, we could just have AI generate articles all day long. Hey, generate me an article about how theater of the mind works in D&D written in the style of Sly Flourish and make it about a thousand words. You know, and you get a big article. Stick it on my website, call it done, throw some ads on there, say, hey, new DM tips, right? And then what? Now it's harder for people to find my work. So that's definitely a threat too, right? Those are all, those feel like the big, the big threats. And I want to quote one of our fine viewers on the on the Twitch show, Lodrain, who said, the AI versus SEO is not the robot battle I anticipated. I thought that was hysterical because that's very true. You have SEO robots, which is also AI, trying to figure out which articles are the actual good articles to put in front of human beings, you know, from like a Google-y, Google-y standpoint. And then that's being battled by AI on the other side who's trying to write SEO-based content to get their stuff viewed so that you can sell advertisement. Not a great situation that we're in. One interesting thing is that from the TTRPG world, which is what we're focusing on, the whole topic, I mean, these, these same arguments are made globally. These exist for all industries. I am particularly interested in how it affects TTRPGs. I am most focused on how it affects TTRGG use for game masters because we are here as game masters. I could talk about publishing all day long and there'd be some small group of people that would be interested in that, but I'm really here mostly for game masters. And the interesting thing from the TTRPG perspective is that Pretty much everybody's coming up with a policy on this. Drive-Thru RPG has a policy. DMs Guild has a policy. Kickstarter has a policy. Paizo has a policy. And now Wizards has a policy. So everybody's got a policy where they're talking about what is acceptable, what isn't, how you have to do it. Some are saying it has to be very clearly labeled. Kickstarter had one that said it has to be very clearly labeled. And if you're using these models, you have to say where the models came from and what they were trained on. So there are lots of different ways that are saying, which is impossible for these models. Many of these models, there's no way they can they can directly say exactly what they are, what they are trained on. So many, many different publishers are are, are giving an, an AI a policy on AI. I don't think I have one. And I, I'll throw one out there, but it's probably not official till I say it's official. But look, look, I'm not going to give you AI generated stuff. A, why would I? I love writing. That's what I do. I'm a writer first and a content creator, you know, and I'm going to give you real stuff. Now, will I use AI for other things? I mean, in certain, you know, I'll tell you where it's really good is code. It's really good at writing code. But, you know, I'm not going to take text that was generated by AI. Will I throw an article into a, an LLM and say, hey, what are some ways this article could be improved or what are some typos you could find? Yeah, but I, now I also have a human being who helps me with that. So I would rather have the human being do it, right? So, yeah. You're not going to see content generated by generative AI that I am going to put out on SciFlourish. And certainly from art perspective, I am going to be hiring real artists, commissioning real artists to art for the books that I, that I do. So there you go. There's a policy. Big topic. This one's not going away. We're going to be talking about this for a long time. And it's going to be painful, I think. It's going to be a painful topic for a lot of people. It certainly was painful for Wizards of the Coast this, this past weekend, I'm sure. Painful for a lot. So one point I want to make with this whole thing, though, is not to lose track of why we're really here. It's so easy to get caught up in a lot of the industry drama, the industry situations that are going on here. And we forget what we're actually doing. And what are we what we're doing is looking at games and looking at how we run games to bring our friends together around a table and enjoy ourselves and build that strong connection with other human beings and have a good time and be ourselves. And that's critical to our existence. I really honestly believe D&D saves lives. I've heard people say it saves lives. I know that during the pandemic, be, being able to play D&D online with people got me through the isolation of the pandemic. And it got a lot of people through the isolation of the pandemic. But for many people, that is the main way that they connect with people. It is the main way that they can be with people and just be themselves and not do it at like a work function and, and just enjoy themselves. And that's why we're here is finding games that we love, finding players that we love to play them with and sitting and playing those games. That's, that's what it's really about. So it's almost like so much of the industry stuff can be sort of a meta game where we're very involved in it. We're really interested. We're reading all the articles where they, and we're not like, and when it comes down deep into it, it's like, 
yeah, but how is that helping me run my game on Wednesday? Or my game, I'm running a game in literally one hour. How is it going to help me when I'm running that game in an hour? And, and you know, so if you find yourself getting wrapped up in sort of the industry zeitgeist of the TTRPG world, which I certainly do, I totally do this. So I'm talking to him, hey, future Mike Shea, pay attention to what I'm saying now. Getting less worried and involved in the TTRPG in the TTRPG industry stuff that's going on and more focused on what we can all do to bring our players together at our table, whether it's virtual or whether it's physical, and enjoy a game. That's what it's really about. It doesn't matter if it's D&D. It doesn't matter if it's Shadow of the Demon Lord or Blades in the Dark. There's so many different games out there. There's so many players that are interested in playing. There's so many connections that we could be having with other human beings, real connections, not like a, a quick post on a social media site somewhere or a, a, you know an upvote on a YouTube video. But go ahead and you can give me an upvote on the YouTube video if you really want to. But real connections with real human beings to sit down with our friends and play the games that we love. So try not to forget that. And I'm saying that as much to myself as I'm saying it to anybody. Try not to forget that. Why are we here? Why are we involved in this industry? Why do we love what the, the, the work that we're doing? Why do I love the work that I'm doing? And it's to help people run great games for their friends. It's very, my, my mission is very straightforward. Let's go through the final questions from the t- July 2023 Patreon Q&A. Every month, I put up a new thread on the Sly Flourish Patreon server. Anybody can ask a question about their games or the TTRPG hobby in general. I answer everything on the Patreon, and then some of them I bring here to the show to talk about, and some of them even turn into other articles or videos. So we will start with Delaney N. says, today, July 19th, this is earlier in the month, J- Dave Chalker, my friend, Dave Chalker posted a brief comment on Mastodon about the Planescape books and his concerns. It sparked a very interesting discussion with AlphaStream and Jared Rashner about Watsi's lack of follow-through regarding 5e sourcebooks lately, particularly non-Forgotten Realms ones. I feel the same way. I'm a Dragonlance junkie. I own almost every novel ever published, but for people that are new to the setting, I think it's almost unfair how little resource material is for the recent adventure and how to expect new users to dig in, dig online for 2e modules and 20-year-old novels is unreasonable. On the other hand, the 5e Dragonlance is amazing. To compare that book to the flappy little <laughs> 2e modules is unrealistic. So I'd love to know your opinion on the topic. Do you think that Wizards is dropping the ball on alternate settings? Are they responsible for for providing future books on them or or are the single experiences that are mostly well executed a reasonable tactic? You've mentioned regularly how much you love Dark Sun. I know nothing about it, but from what you say, it sounds great. I think if they had one and done publication on it, you and I would have had a very different experience with it. Great question. And I brought this in because I do, it it brings up one main point that I want to make about like what we need from Wizards of the Coast or what we really desire from Wizards of the Coast and then the kinds of stuff from Wizards of the Coast that really isn't that important. And yeah, so so I did see the exchange with Dave and, and Teos and other folks on Mastodon. Mastodon, by the way, really great place to hang out. Go go hang out on Mastodon. Talk about, talk about RPGs. Lots of great RPG people there talking about the game. And are they dropping the ball? Yes, I feel like they're dropping the ball. I, felt, I feel like whenever they have done a setting product after Eberron Rising from the Last War, they have not given it the kind of service that I think those settings require. And my biggest issue with them is that we're never we're not going to see them again that when they put out the Spelljammer box set the way that wizards of the coast has been doing products these days they're not going to put out more Spelljammer products about the only time that they have returned to a particular world other than the forgotten realms a particular time that they have turned to another one of these settings is when they went to van from curse of strahd to van richten's guide to ravenloft and that's because curse of strahd was like the 20, you know, 20 time better seller than any other adventure that they put out. Now you could say the critical role ones they did too. They did go back to the world of critical role with wild mount and call from the nether deep, but very rarely do they go back. And I don't think we're going to see another Spelljammer box set. Now the issue also is they are the only ones in the world that can do it. If they say, Hey, we're going to do something for dark sun, for example, they're the only ones that can make a dark sun book. Any of any of us could make like a post-apocalyptic fantasy RPG. They're the only one that can do Dark Sun. They're the only one that can do Dragonlance. They're the only one that could do Spelljammer. They're the only one that could do Planescape. Which is why whatever they do with Big B's and the, the, the Big B's giant book, right? Whatever they do with Big B's Glory of the Giants, it's like, well, you and I could write a giant book. If we want to do a book about giant lore 
anybody can write a book about giant lore and it's fine that they did and i'm sure that uh, i haven't taken a look at it yet but i bet you it's probably a pretty good book just like fizzband's treasury of dragons is a big book about dragons but cobalt press could easily do a book about dragons level up advanced 5e and world publishing could do a book about giants anybody can do books on those topics but only wizards of the coast can do a book about dragonlance and only wizards of the coast can do a book about planescape and spelljammer which is why when they do that book and they don't give it the full they don't put out a book that's like rising from the last war where i could use that setting book it's one book they don't have to put out more but from that one book i could run eberron games for the rest of my life and i know people are saying like well they don't want you to do that they want you to buy the next book they don't want you to lose yourself in eberron and never buy another book i doubt that that's their reason i think they're just experimenting with different formats but one of those formats is spelljammer and they decided that they're going to focus on a book full of monsters, a book full of, you know, ship, ship stuff that doesn't include ship combat and an adventure. And they didn't even do a setting book. There's like one city. There's no setting book for Spelljammer and that's it. We're not getting a setting book for Spelljammer. It might be 10 years before they go back to that setting again. And that was their one shot. Now they got Planescape coming out. It's already done. So whatever happens, happens. But when Planescape comes out, that's it. That's what we're going to get. We're not going to get more Planescape stuff. And that's kind of a bummer. Right. So that's where I feel about this. And that's why I, I'm, I'm harder about Spelljammer and I'll and I'll probably be pretty hard about Planescape, depending on what it's like. Hopefully I, I have high hopes for Planescape, but they're the only ones that can go to these classic settings that they've got, these classic worlds that they've got and write stuff for it. They're the only one that can do it. And that's kind of a bummer. Now, DM Guild aside, like people could go to the DM Guild and write their own stuff. But the DM Guild is not a not a commercially viable platform for people that need the money to spend it. Keith Baker, you know, tried really hard with Eberron. And he did. He did really good products. But I don't think they made the money back that he needed. BSSS says, I'm a GM who doesn't have a group or get the opportunity to play regularly. I'm very sorry for that. Hopefully you can, hopefully we can, we can solve that problem. Much of your advice focuses the game around the fun of being at the table. Well, this has greatly improved the quality of my games. When I'm in between groups, I feel at a loss for what I can prep that I will actually use in my next game. What GM prep activities do you feel bring the most value and are most fun for when you don't know who your next players will be? So that's a good question. And I think there are certain things that you can do when you're when you have kind of long periods of time between groups and it might not even be the same groups that you're running for that's a different style than like the prepping every game for every week that you're going to run and i think that a couple there's a couple of things that you can do that i think are pretty valuable and then there's a few things that i i think people tend to resonate or tend to go towards that are probably not that valuable the valuable things that you can do are to think about the world think about the region where you're going to start the characters think about interesting situations that are going on there think about the villains and what they're doing think about any kind of political machinations think about like the overall events that are taking place regardless of the characters and that's the big difference. Then the things that are not valuable to think about are what's going to happen. What will happen? Don't don't write out a plot about what will happen and the characters will go from A to B to C to D to E to F. Instead, think about the world. Think about the situation. Think about all of those interesting situations. Build out locations. Fill out those locations. Talk about what's happening in those locations. Build a world that lives without the characters. And then when you have time to drop the characters in, you're going to have a pretty rich world for them to be able to navigate. Now, you don't want to make it so big that you're like, you know, you're going to, you, you feel like you've only touched 5%. The characters are only going to touch 5% of what you made. St you can still start around the characters and build from the characters outwards. But if you have that extra time, you can really think about like, well, what's happening here? Who are these villains? How are they? You know, I have, I have a game where I've got three different cults and those three cults are fighting each other. So it doesn't matter what the characters do. The cults are still fighting each other. That's kind of an interesting thing to navigate who would win and what what kind of you know advantage are they getting against the others and then the players are dropped in the characters are dropped in and they get to screw around in that situation and change things i think that that's probably a valuable way to spend time for prep when you have time in between games and you don't necessarily know who the characters are christopher w says i'm wondering how to tackle a published setting for a campaign for example i feel overwhelmed by the sheer size of midgard and i don't know where to begin what do you do to get familiar with the setting and prepare for your midgard campaigns midgard is a good example example of this because the Midgard world book is huge and it's got so much material. When you talk about a setting book, the kind of setting book I adore, the Midgard world book is an example of a setting book I adore because there isn't anything left out. That book is huge, but can it be overwhelming? Yes, it can be very overwhelming. And then it's even more overwhelming when they also have specific source books for specific regions. So you have your City of Zobek source book. You have your Southland source book. You have, I just got the Wasted West or the, the, it's got Waste of Chaos, it's called. 
that's got a lot of ties to the Wasted West. That's a lot of material. I'm like, oh my God, what are you going to do with all this stuff? Plus there's like, a, you know, Wizards of the Coast has tons of supplementary material for the locations. And, and there's a couple of things that you can do. One is focus your campaign on one spot. Focus on one region. What is, when, you, when you kind of flip through and you read the introductions to each of those regions and you say, I want to run a campaign in vampire-controlled con- Morgoth and Krakovia, or I want to run an adventure set in the Dwarven Cantons, or I want to run an adventure set in the Frozen North or the Southlands or around Zobek. An easy one is to run adventures around Zobek. Zobek's kind of like a nice, good-sized city where you can do a lot of different adventures that sort of touch on connections to all of the people of all the different realms. So you can focus down on those on, on specific things. An interesting thing for Midgard is like how Empire of the Ghouls handles it. Empire of the Ghouls covers almost it covers like all of central from top to bottom the central areas of Midgard. It doesn't touch the Dragon Empire on the east. It doesn't touch the Wasted West. It, but it but it hits everything else. Everything from the Northlands, the the Cantons, the city of Zobek, and the Southlands. It's hitting all, and then the Underworld. Right? It's hitting a ton of stuff. And that was actually a lot of work for me to get into. I didn't find it overwhelming, but I did find it was a lot to kind of dig into but you read what you can you pick up what you can you read what you can you pick up ideas from it but you know again focusing down one problem with empire of the ghouls is because you're doing so much travel it's like well, you're only going to be in the city of cats for a few days but i got to learn all about the city of cats and i want to make sure to give enough information about the city of cats so that the players can go oh that place was cool it had big pyramids and lots of cat stuff going on then they go to the city of sewell and they have like oh this is kind of interesting it's it's kind of a little bit gangster run but also has this heavy focus on the fact that it sits right next to the grand necropolis so my answer would be find specific places, focus on those regions, run your adventures on, on those specific regions, learn that. And then you can expand out to other ones. You could actually run a bunch of different campaigns. The Midgard World Book is one of those books where you could run a campaign every couple of years for the rest of your life and not cover everything that's in that book. But yeah, that, that, that feeling of being overwhelmed is definitely a concern. Giving yourself the freedom to fill in the blanks, even if you know that those blanks might be filled in in other sections of the book. I think that's a big one. And I have trouble with that one myself. So Christopher, I hope that helps you. Ben H says, if you use puzzles, non-combat encounters for your game, where do you source them from? If anywhere, I don't, I'm not a big fan of puzzles. And I used to be, I used to use a lot of kind of puzzles and stuff like that, but I, I'm, you know, and I think I probably have talked about this before. I'm just not a fan of puzzles because I don't feel like they make sense in the world a lot of times. And I I play games. I was, my favorite video game of all time is Horizon Forbidden West. I adore Horizon Forbidden West and I'm playing the Burning Shores expansion. And last night, my wife and I were relaxing. We had a busy, busy weekend and we're sitting there relaxing and I'm playing Horizon Forbidden West. And I got to like move this box around to, to drag it up using my trip caster thing so I can lift it up so that I can jump up on this ledge and get to these other places. I had to like drag it through the water and there's all this weird stuff. And I was like, why did the box, why was the box in that perfect spot for me to be able to use the trip caster? Like, thank God the box didn't explode into rotted wood when I hit it with the trip caster. And then I'd never have a way up to those things. There's a lot of parts in games where like there's a puzzle there, but it doesn't make sense why the puzzle is there or that it's just easy enough for you to be able to solve it and just hard enough that you actually have to solve it. So I'm not, I don't think that there's a lot of good in-game reasons to have what we most often think of are puzzles. It's one thing for like code cracking. If you want to use like Caesar ciphers and that different groups have been sending secret messages back and forth and you intercept one of the messages and it's a Caesar cipher and you use the Caesar cipher to break the code. That's kind of fun. And there's opportunities for that. But like a tomb, like who puts a Sudoku on the front door of their house? And it's like, oh, well, nobody can get into my house unless you can figure out the Sudoku. And if you can figure it out, then you can come on in and take my TV. Nobody has that. So why would you have a tomb that has like a big puzzle on the front of it? Why, why don't you just seal up the tomb to make sure nobody gets there? Why is it? Or, or if you want people to get there, why not leave it open? What are the odds that the people that should that you wanted to come in are the right people to come in? that you, you so you put a puzzle on that only they can figure out that other people who aren't the right people to come in it doesn't make any sense to me so i tend not to use puzzles also they take a lot of time they take a lot of prep and i think there's better places to put our games you know i think i think focusing on the characters i think that they 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 really they really go so I'm not a big fan of puzzles and i put this question in here just because i want to talk about not being a fan of puzzles judge says any ideas on engaging players between sessions i have some but i'm interested in any others not everyone can make every weekly session and i was looking to engage people in the off weeks in particular yes so one thing you can do we we have a discord server that we use for online games both both of my groups have a discord server and that is a fine place to do some sort of offline role playing where you can have situations where the character is involved in a situation particularly if the character hasn't been there and and, and the other characters are you could have sort of a one-on-one either over discord or email or even a phone call or take a walk with them go have lunch and and you know go through some role-playing 
There's a game by Monty Cook Games called Invisible Sun. And one of the interesting things about Invisible Sun is that it expected to have different phases for the game. That there were the times when the GM was doing like kind of lonely fun sort of planning and prep. And I think there was even time for players to do a bit of their own work independently of the game and then there were sessions where you and the dm you and the gm would get together and kind of walk through some situations of your characters one-on-one and then you'd have the game where all of you came together overall i never played invisible sun so i don't know how well that worked but i was taken by that concept that idea of like hey the game isn't just when you have your five friends around your table that the game can actually take place in other circumstances there's a lot of room to do things there it's almost like downtime activities but downtime activities that are offline there's a lot of room to do things so if your characters are in cities and you know you're going to have downtime in the game you could work with them offline for that kind of downtime you can even do like things in the past like what are things that occurred in the past you could have those conversations and maybe you during like a session zero you say hey during this game because we want to do really deep character rich stuff i'd like to have phone calls with you from time to time offline where we talk about things that are going on with your characters and things that you learn and things that you discover and you can decide what to do with it during the actual game so I think that that is, there's, there's a lot of opportunity there. There's a lot of options there for how to do sort of offline games. I, I don't do a lot of it because I run three different games and I'm busy anyway. So I rarely have the time to kind of engage in every player outside of the game. But I could see a lot of room there to do so. I think that there's a lot of options there to do so, both from just having conversations about things, having a little bit of role playing in character. You could do it. It seems weird, but once you get into it, it's not that weird. I've done it. It's not that strange. And even ways to like give players some homework that they could do that will affect the game too. Not sort of like mechanically sort of homework, but like things, you know, thoughts about their characters that they might want to dig into or questions that you can ask that they could do offline. There's a lot of opportunity for that. So yeah, that's probably another area for further, for further discussion or like, what are the things that you can do between sessions? I should write that down. Friends, I want to thank you all for hanging out with me today while we talked about all things in TTRPGs. If you like this show, the best way to follow the work that I do, to see all of the different things I do, to get sort of a, a, a weekly email hub of all of the things that I do, both the vi- links to videos, links to podcasts, individual Patreon questions, DM tips, and an article, you can do so by subscribing to the Sly Flourish newsletter. It's absolutely free to sign up. You get a free Adventure Generator PDF, but you also get this weekly article sent to you that includes both an article and all of these other links to the other things that I do. It's the best way to follow everything that I do. If you want to support me directly, you can do so on Patreon. Patrons get access to the monthly Q&A, the a dedicated Discord server, the City of Arches sourcebook, a whole bunch of exclusive material. They were a big help in helping me keep all this stuff going. And you can pick up any of my books, including Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, Lazy DM's Workbook, and The Lazy DM's Companion, all available on the Sly Flourish bookstore. Thank you all very much. Have a great day and get out there and play an RPG.